and we are in the book of Acts, and as we see here, we are going to try today to review uh, the first 18 chapters. We thought that it was probably too much for us to go through the entire book of Acts all in one setting, and so we started last January, uh, almost a year and a half ago now, and uh, we have taken it piece by piece, and if you would like to go, uh, I think this was the week I, I got corrected a lot, because if you want to go and hear any of the sermons uh, in more detail, uh, you can go to fogkc.com. Somebody told me this week that I don't have to say www anymore. Why don't people tell me these things when it, when it happens? I keep typing www and people keep giggling at me and I don't know what they're doing. So anyway, folks, help me out. Tell me those things when it happens, okay? But you can go to our website at fogkc.com and you can listen to any of the sermons uh, in detail there. But I want us to kind of get our bearings back. There are a lot of people who are new to our church uh, since last January. Uh, there are those of us who have memories like mine that just need to be reminded of some of these things. And there's some really great lessons that we need to really keep reminding ourselves of in the first 18 chapters of the book of Acts. And so let's get started, and I want to just point out to you that today's going to go pretty quick. Uh, we're not going to talk in a lot of details, but if you'll go to our website, you can see that we have spent uh, about probably 40 sermons going up to this point so far. And so you can go back and listen to any of those in great detail. First thing I want you to see is this. In the book of Acts, Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry and teaching. That's very important. Look what it says in Acts 1.1. Luke, the author of this book along with the Gospel of Luke, says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now listen, words are very important. What Luke is saying here is, listen, in my first book, the book of Luke, I wrote to you about the things uh, of where Jesus began to do his ministry of teaching and ministering to others. Now I'm going to talk to you about how he continues it. And we immediately go, what? He continues it? Well, Jesus is off the scene by the end of chapter 1. How is, how is the book of Acts the continuation well, folks, here's why. Because we're going to see in a minute that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. And he has the church now, the body of Christ, to do his work. The reason this is important is because while it's certainly fine for us to say, hey, I'd like to invite you to my church, that's certainly fine to say those things. But it's important theologically that we understand this is not your church. This is not my church. This is even, not even our church. This is his church. And so it is a continuation of Jesus' ministry through the Spirit living in us and through the body of Christ, the church. Let's not ever forget that, folks. When we begin to think that this is uh, somehow all about us or somehow the ministry is ours to own, we can get off track very quickly. It is ours to manage. It is ours to organize for him. But it is always his. It will always be his. And it's important that we understand that. And Luke was wanting to point that out to us here in the very first uh, uh, book, in the first verse of the book of Acts. We see there in Acts 1, 8, and 9 that Jesus ascended to the Father. Jesus ascended to the Father. Like I said, Jesus in the body is going to be gone here very quickly. And so this is after the crucifixion. This is after the resurrection He's hanging out with the apostles, and here's what he says. He says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
Now, while I wanted to point out to you here that Jesus ascended to the Father, that he did stand there, he gave the apostles this charge, and then he rose up and disappeared in the clouds, I want to make sure that you understand that Acts 1.8 is the crux of the entire book of Acts. The entire book of Acts is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. If we go back and look, Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is. Here's the strategy. And you will be my witnesses. Not, I want you to be my witnesses. Would you think about being my witnesses? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city you're in, in all Judea and Samaria, the areas around it, and finally to the end of the earth, all over the world. That is the strategy that Jesus asked these first generation Christians to follow. And I believe it's the strategy he wants all Christians to follow. So if we're going to put this into our context, we need to first, uh, you know, do the ministry here in Kansas City and in Parkville. And then we need to spread out to the area around us, uh, Missouri and Kansas. And then we need to spread out all across the world, go to the Philippines, go to Haiti, go to other places in the world, which we have done to spread the gospel. We see then that Jesus fulfilled what he said he would do. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the disciples. And this is powerful. This is, this is really incredible. This is the first time in all of history that God the Spirit has actually indwelt a human being. Look what happens in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we see this incredible thing happening. I thought we were going to see it this week uh, when uh, we got the tornado warning. Derek and I were here at the thing and I walked outside and I thought I heard a mighty rushing wind. I knew it was either a tornado or the Holy Spirit. I wasn't sure which. Uh, But uh, uh, listen, this is exactly what happened. We think it happened exactly like this. Uh, This is not an example that had left them in the body. They were praying and asking for God's blessing, asking for God's leadership, and the Holy Spirit comes, and he, he fills the room with a mighty rushing wind like the sound of a tornado. Tongues of fire go and land on each of their heads, and they began to speak in other languages that they had never understood, that they had never learned, that they had never practiced, and they did that so that everyone in Jerusalem at the time could understand the gospel in their own language. Now, folks, we, we have to be careful to, to uh, not think that this is an exaggeration. This is exactly what happened. But never again in the Scripture does it happen this way. Never again in uh, church history does it happen this way. I want us to understand that we can totally, we have a tendency sometimes to either go, well, we have to either uh, accept this as normative and it should happen every time somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, or because it doesn't match my experience, it's hogwash and it's a bunch of exaggeration. Folks, God can do whatever he wants to do. Fact is, this is a historical event, and it happened exactly like he said it did, like Luke said it did. Uh, But it's not normative, and it's not something that we should expect. So if you didn't hear a big tornado when you received the Holy Spirit, when you received Christ as your Savior, it's okay. If a big tongue of fire didn't land on your head, it's okay. If you didn't speak in tongues, it's okay. Okay? Let's not think that we see these things and we either have to totally, uh, our experience either has to totally match it or we are totally against what it says. We see then that thousands, thousands were believing. This is powerful, folks. 
I pray and long for the day that I can experience something like this. In Acts 2.41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That day, 3,000 souls. In Acts 2.47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4.4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000, which means with their uh, believing wives and believing children, it may have been up to 20,000 people. Now we look at that, and I think it's important to understand, somebody counted them. Somebody knew about how many there were because somebody took the time to count them. Numbers are important to God. I I don't want to, I know I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it till Jesus comes. Numbers are important to God. They aren't important so I can go to some pastor's conference and tell them how many seats we filled in the, in, the, in the service. That's not important. It's important because there are 250,000 people still in Clay and Platt counties who are far from God, who don't know Christ as their Savior. We better worry about numbers because the number of lost people is growing and the number of Christians is diminishing Folks, we have to be interested in numbers, not for numbers' sake, but because there's an eternal soul connected to each one of those numbers. If five people uh, come to Fellowship of Grace and they uh, hear the gospel and they receive Christ as their Savior, that's important because that's five eternities that have been changed forever. And many times their spouse and children will follow them. This may be a a, a situation where their generation and their children and their children's children and their children's children's children now follow Jesus. Uh, So these numbers are important, folks. Let's not get uh, too spiritual that we say, well, numbers aren't important. You know, I I hear this other, you know, where two or three are gathered, there God, okay, I I know God's here, I get that, but but I'm not interested in two or three people in Clay and Platt counties receiving Christ. I'm interested in 2,000 or 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000. Not because I want my name in some paper or on the news or even our church's name. I want people to go to heaven. I, I love what Jesus loves. I care about what he cares about. And he cares about lost people and he loves them. So we need to care about them and love them too. We saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, that the church began living as it should. Not that it was living wrong before, but it really starts to live out who the church is. Look what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, folks, this is exactly what a church should be. And we should always uh, not compare our church to your last church experience. We should compare this church uh, not to how it was even five years ago, but compare this church to this church, the first century church that was living out what God wanted us to be. They were having fellowship with one another. They were in awe of him. They thought he was cool. 
All right? I mean, they were, they were feeling that way together about who he was. They were taking care of one another. Now listen, uh, in our church, any one of us could go home from this service and by some uh, uh, act of God, our home is burned to the ground. Any one of us could be in need this afternoon. We need to be a church that, that looks after each other, that takes care of each other. And we see all these things happening. We see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We need to be devoted to the Word of God. These guys were speaking the Word of God. They were teaching the Word of God. It wasn't written down yet, but it was still the same truth. We need to be devoted to that. Not read it in our spare time. Have a Bible study once a week. Are we devoted to the Word of God? Folks, we need to think about these things. The church really began living as it should, and I'm convinced that part of the reason there were thousands coming to know Christ is because the church was doing what it should be doing. It was functioning well, it was healthy, it was doing what it should be doing. We also saw that miracles were being done by the apostles. In Acts 5.12 it says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now I know the question for many as they read the book of Acts is, why don't we experience that today? Why don't we experience uh, miracles regularly done? You know, Michael, do a miracle. Come on, let's see it. Let's go. Listen, the church is not a circus. Church is not a sideshow. It's not a place where uh, people need to come to be impressed or whatever. Why was it so prevalent then and it's not as prevalent today? Doesn't mean God won't do it. Doesn't mean God can't do it. Why is it not as prevalent? I'll tell you why. Because the word of God is in our hands, folks. There's not a single person in our culture, if they really, truly want to find God, they can go to the Christian bookstore and slap down $20 and buy a Bible. They can find God. These men were speaking these words for the first time. And when you go into a city and you say, hey, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. Uh, they killed him, but three days later he rose from the dead and he's the savior of the world. Boy, I mean, you know, you're either a kook or you're going to get beat up, and we saw that happening. And so what God did was he did these miracles on a regular basis in the early church to validate these men's testimony, to validate their message, to be proof that what they were saying was right. Think about it. If a man told you some kind of crazy story like this, and you're like, man, you're off your rocker. And then all of a sudden he goes, hey, you know that guy that's been crippled his whole life? Hey, buddy, get up and walk. And the guy stands up and dances down the street. All of a sudden you go, now, what was that you were saying about your friend again? What, what, what was that? You see, God was using it for his purpose. But we see these miracles being done by the apostles in great number. We also saw that as persecution increased, so did preaching with boldness. In Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, it says this, And when they had brought them, the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You see, folks, as persecution came to the church, instead of cowering down, instead of backing off, instead of not causing, they said, listen, we can't stop talking about this. We've seen these things. We've experienced these things. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus rose from the dead. We're not going to stop talking about this. And the more and more you push, the more and more we're going to preach. Now, folks, America has been a very uh, cushy seat at the Christian table for a long time. It's becoming less of that. And some of you in this room who are young, way younger than me, you're probably going to experience persecution in this world like I will never experience in this country. The question is, when it becomes uh, more and more prevalent for you to be persecuted, when we get past, they're making fun of me at the water cooler and they're calling me names, and it becomes real persecution, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? I pray that we don't cower down and back off, but we stand strong and, and, and embrace the gospel and who God meant us to be. While we have it pretty easy in this world, it only takes you a quick five-second search on the internet to look up martyrs uh, in today's world, and you'll see that Christians are being killed for nothing more than their faith in Jesus all over the world, and especially in the Middle East. There are people there giving their absolute lives simply for the fact that they will not renounce their faith. That time may come for us. And so we need to be ready. I want us to look at this example they've given us. And when persecution comes, our preaching should increase. We see in Acts chapter 6 that the first deacons were chosen. Seven men were chosen to serve. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Remember Stephen here in a minute. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now let me give you a little background very quickly of what was happening here. There was a group of widows not getting fed. And it was brought to the apostles' uh, attention. And the apostles basically said, guys, this is not important enough. These widows not getting fed is not important enough for us to do. Now, I know that that rubs some of you the wrong way really bad. Okay? They weren't saying it's not important enough for us to deal with. They were simply saying it's not important enough for us ourselves to do. You choose from among yourselves some men with good reputation, full of the Spirit, and we'll put them in charge of it. By the way, these seven men take care of the problem. We never hear of this issue again in the New Testament, so we assume that it all got taken care of. But what the, what the apostles said 
was we cannot give up our time in the word and to pray even for the sake of starving widows. Now, there's a principle here that's confirmed several more times in the New Testament. Folks, the pastors and elders at this church, we are not the paid professional ministers. Don't expect us to do all the ministry. That's not how the church works. We are the equippers. We are the organizers. We are the the people that provide uh, an atmosphere, an organization, for you to be who God made you to be, which is the ministers of the body. Okay? Don't think that your paid uh, pastors are the the paid on-staff ministers that need to go. We don't need to do every hospital visit. We don't need to, to do all the counseling. We don't need to do all the help with financial problems. We don't need to do everything for everybody because, folks, we're not the ministers. We're just, we're just the uh, flight controllers, you know. You guys are the ministers. Now, we're here to equip you and help you and teach you and do everything we can. But I want to make sure that you understand here, this is a principle that goes throughout the New Testament. Of course, the apostles are later um, um, replaced in a sense, as the apostles died out, they were replaced with elders in every church. And so the elders of this church are not are really to focus on the word and prayer as we attempt and try to do. We see after this that Stephen was martyred. That very first man who was chosen to be the first deacon, in a sense, or the first among the seven, Stephen was martyred, the first martyr in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 60. It says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The persecution took a couple of notches up. Stephen here loses his life for nothing more than his faith in Jesus. Nothing more. And so now uh, it's kind of a big uh, turning point in the church. Stephen will now be the first among many uh, hundreds, thousands, and hundreds of thousands of Christian martyrs throughout history who will give their lives for no other reason than their faith in Jesus Christ. We have a day here where we we uh, acknowledge and we honor those who've given their lives uh, in defense of our country. There's nothing wrong with that. I- I'm all for it. But we should, you know, we should, we should, we should pick a day and make it our uh, annual holiday to maybe uh, memorialize those who have lost their lives in defense of the faith. Now, they, God doesn't need our help, okay? The faith is going to win. We know Jesus is the victor. But there have many, been many, many people who have given their lives uh, for Christianity's sake. And Stephen here is the first one. We see then that persecution scattered the disciples through Judea and Samaria. Remember back to Acts 1.8 when Jesus said, You will be my uh, disciples in Jerusalem, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. They're all still hunkered down together in Jerusalem. They're enjoying their time together. They're holding hands, singing kumbaya, having a wonderful time worshiping and and, and fellowshipping and enjoying each other's lives. And so God allows persecution to come to force them to go on mission. 
Look what it says. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now that's, that's baffling to me. Who did Jesus tell you will be my witness? The apostles. They all hunkered down there in Jerusalem, staying together as long and as, as tightly as they could. And so God brought persecution to scatter them, have them run for their lives, and guess where they ran? Judea and Samaria, the very places that Jesus said you would be my witnesses. But as the disciples ran to those places, the 12 apostles stayed in Jerusalem, refusing to go. Folks, our leaders, the leaders in this church, the pastors of this church, need to be the first to follow God. I'm not saying the apostles were doing something wrong or sinful, but they were certainly allowing just those who were, uh, in, in a sense, disciples, followers of Jesus, to do this particular work. And I want us to apply this to who we are. Our church is committed to planting churches, planting churches in Clay and Platt counties, planting churches all around the world. While I love the people of our church, and it would be very tempting for us to all just get in a big group hug and, and just be together till Jesus comes and enjoy one another's lives and take care of each other, the reality is we're going to need to send some people away from our church to go start another church down the road, across the street, uh, uh, you know, down this way, Liberty, Lee Summit. Blue Springs, Grandview, who knows where? I don't know where yet. But while we, we love one another and we, we embrace our church and we feel really good about being here, folks, the church is a little bit like a hospital. You go there to get well so you can get out. Okay? We should be coming into the church uh, to grow and to, to be equipped and to re really realize how to do ministry well, how to evangelize, how to disciple. And then not stay here forever, but be sent out. And so while we love each other, it's important that we don't get this same kind of a holy huddle mentality. Then we see that Saul's converted on the road to Damascus. Saul, the one who was holding the coats for those who killed Stephen. It says here, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, and this can be said two different ways. It can be said, who are you, Lord? Or it can be said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Look at what Jesus said there. He didn't say, you're persecuting my church. He said, you're persecuting me. See, folks, Jesus is confirming what we saw in, in Acts 1.1. The church is the continuation of his presence in the world. And so as Saul was persecuting the church, he was really persecuting Jesus. But the name changed from Saul to Paul. He becomes one of the greatest evangelists and missionaries in the entire history of the world. He writes uh, close to two-thirds of the New Testament. And God does an incredible uh, thing in Saul's life. This is a big, big highlight in the book of Acts. In Acts 10, we see that Gentiles receive Christ as their Savior. 
Now this is important because all the way up through Acts chapter 9, the only people who have come to know Christ as their Savior are Jews. They are people who are already following the one true God. They are people who are already connected through the Old Testament to who God is and what he's like. And they are the ones who are following Jesus as Christians. But look what happens as uh, Peter goes and, and talks to a man named Cornelius and his family. Uh, Peter is, by the way, led to him. And Cornelius has a dream about a man coming to talk to him. And here's what happens. While Peter was still saying these things, preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. We see here that uh, uh, Jesus didn't come just to save the Jews, but he came to save the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. Most of us in this room. And so this happens, and, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And basically, Peter's like, okay, guys, anybody not going to let them in the club? I, I mean, they've already been filled with the Holy Spirit. God's put his stamp of approval on them. Are we going to keep them out? I don't think so. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. And we'll see that that becomes important here in a few minutes. We see then in Acts chapter 13 that Paul leaves Antioch on his first missionary journey. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, Paul becomes the first missionary, and he goes on his first missionary journey. He doesn't leave from Jerusalem. The church was started in Jerusalem. The home, the, the, the mothership of all churches is Jerusalem. And he doesn't get sent out of Jerusalem. He gets sent out of Antioch. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem is still having a holy huddle. They're still loving one another and, and, and spending time with one another and all that stuff. And they're not doing the mission. They're not doing the mission. But the church at Antioch is serious about reaching people with the gospel. And so they send Paul out. Look what it says. Now that we're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch on the first missionary journey. Uh, they go to 12 to 14 to maybe even as many as 18 or 20 cities. They strategically evangelize. They lead some people to Christ there, and a church is birthed. They are missionaries slash church planters. They're planting churches in each one of these cities that they go to. And then something happens. There's a thing called the Jerusalem Council. It takes place in Acts 15. Basically, a few people were saying, hey, hang on now. We're letting all these non-Jews into the Christian club. We can't be doing that. All these guys who want to become Christians, they've got to be circumcised. And all these people that want to be Christians, they've got to follow the law of Moses. They've got to become Jews like us if they're really going to be Christians. And let's see what happens. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What Peter's saying there is, guys, why would we make them follow the Old Testament law when we can't even do it? We failed miserably. Your fathers have failed miserably to keep the law. And now you want to put it on these guys? What is that about? It's crazy. So they're saying, hey, look, you know, God chose these guys. God, God caused them to believe. God gave them the Holy Spirit. Who in the world are we to put some added stuff on them? And this argument is settled here at the Jerusalem Council for all of history. We don't have to follow Judaism to be followers of Jesus Christ. Are there principles in Judaism that carry over? Of course there are. But we don't follow the dietary laws of the Mosaic Law. There's a lot of things that we don't do, not because we don't believe the Bible, but because that time period is over and we're not Jews. And so the church, the elders and the apostles, made the decision uh, with God's help that this would not be necessary ever. And by the way, uh, uh, Peter says some other things here that we need to make sure uh, that we understand. What Peter was saying here is, guys, look, people are saved by faith in Jesus, by God's grace toward them. And so it doesn't matter whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether they're rich or they're poor, beautiful or ugly, black, white, green, pink, orange. It doesn't matter, folks. At the cross, at the cross, we are all equals. Access to salvation in Jesus Christ is equal for everyone. And by the way, being part of this church is the same way. Any person who walks through that door who says, I repent of my sins and I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. By faith, I accept what he did on the cross. I give my life to him. They can be a part of us. They can be a part of us. And so folks, we need to keep that in mind. I know y'all are getting hungry. Hang on just a couple more things. We see here that Paul goes on his second missionary journey. We see that in Acts 15, 36. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And so Paul, and actually Paul and Barnabas now have a discussion. They have a disagreement about whether they're going to take John Mark with them. And so Barnabas doesn't go uh, with Paul, but they both go on separate missionary journeys. But Paul goes here on his second missionary journey. He does go back to many of the churches that he started in the first missionary journey to disciple them, to see how they're doing, to appoint elders in some of the churches that don't have them. And uh, we just see that... um, he goes then again to another 15 to 20 cities where he evangelizes and starts a church. Now, I want you to see one principle that we've talked about before, but I think it's important to repeat. And there are three growth reports in the book of Acts. 
we see that the church grew numerically. When it talks about the number of people, the church grows numerically. Our church should grow numerically. People should be coming to faith in Jesus. People should be coming to faith in Christ. In fact, uh, uh, the pastors here are doing something new with uh, our ministry leaders. By the way, if I haven't gotten to you yet, this is your notice. Uh, uh, we are going to be asking every time we get together, we're going to have a coaching session once a month with every leader. And in that coaching session, we're going to ask two questions. Who are the two people that you are trying to lead to Jesus through your personal evangelism? And who are the two people that you are investing your life in by discipling them? Leaders, we have to be modeling these things if we expect our people to be doing it. And so when we get together, you can ask me who my two people, who my two and two are, and I, and I want to know who your two and two are. Because every one of us should be involved in trying to share the gospel with people and, and involved with uh, growing people in the relationship with Christ, which is the second way the church grows. It grows spiritually. It grows in depth. Several places in the book of Acts, it says the word of God grew. Now, the truth of God's word doesn't expand, but it expands in my life. What I knew when I was 12, when I received Christ as my Savior, I know a lot more now. I, I can be accountable for a lot more now. I can hopefully execute it much better now. And so it's, it's a, a, a take on my life is greater now than it was when I first became a Christian. And then the church grows geographically. We need to uh, send people out, not just hold hands till Jesus comes. We need to be sending people out and planting churches now. Uh, three years ago, we planted a church called Legacy Church. They meet over on uh, uh, North Oak Trafficway. And in three years, they've had some changes in their leadership, um, and they are struggling. Um, and so uh, uh, the pastor there, Kevin Barnes, who was, was the pastor when we launched Legacy Church out of our church, a bunch of our people went and uh, tried to help them get that started. He's come to understand that his personal shape, like what we've just been talking about the last few weeks, is better, uh, uh, well, he knows himself better. He realizes that he would probably work better and thrive uh, better in an environment where he has help with strategic planning and critical decision-making and risk-taking and some kind of those parts of being a church planter. In lieu of that, uh, Legacy has been having conversations with the pastor elders here at Fellowship of Grace to determine the best strategy for helping them, helping them to move forward, growing the kingdom, and having a greater impact on the community. We don't want them to flounder. We don't want them to die. We want them to succeed. Both Kevin and the elders here at Fog have come to the conclusion that the best strategy would be to have Legacy come under the umbrella of Fellowship of Grace and actually be a campus uh, a church of Fog. Okay? We're not doing video. Okay? We're not, we're not going to do the thing where you videotape me and they play it somewhere else. He will be a campus pastor that preaches there, that pastors those people. But he will be uh, an elder with the elders at Fellowship of Grace where we can help him with uh, critical decision-making and strategy and all those things to help that church move forward. Uh, we'll rename it later. But over the next six or seven weeks, we're going to have several times where you as, as congregational members can get together with the leaders uh, here at Fellowship of Grace and with Kevin uh, to just talk about you know, asking questions and offer ideas and just build some consensus of both congregations that this is probably the right strategy to help them thrive. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, we're trying, we're trying to plant more churches and now we're you know, killing one by bringing it under our umbrella. 
Listen, I'm not, I'm not interested in specifically the number of churches. If that's an extra one church out there that struggles uh, with 50 people forever because they don't have the help they need, I would much rather be, have one less church, have it come under uh, kind of our banner, our umbrella, and us help them to grow and win another 100 people to Jesus. Okay? It's about growing the kingdom. It's not about growing the number of churches or what we've got you know, on pictures on a wall or how many churches under our church. Or all that. It's not even that kind of stuff. It's about growing the kingdom. And we feel both their leaders and, and our leaders both feel like we can help them significantly to grow the kingdom by coming under our banner and getting our help. Will they be autonomous again someday? I don't know. We'll see. If they can be and succeed that way, we're fine with that. So... Uh, we'll put some announcements in the city, let you know what's going on and uh, when you can come and be a part of those discussions, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what's happening in the book of Acts. Uh, Father, help us to be that kind of church. Help us to be the kind of church that grows your kingdom, that evangelizes, that disciples people, that sends them out. God, it's gonna break our heart one day to send people out to plant a church. Maybe some of our closest friends will go. But Father, help us to understand and realize that the kingdom is more important than our personal feelings. In fact, you might call one of us to go. Help us to be ready for that. Help us to uh, just be used by you in the way that you want to use us. God, we want to see hundreds and thousands of people come to know you in Clay and Platte counties. We give ourselves to you and ask you to do great things through us. In Jesus' name, amen.